There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. As the hippie era of the 60s waned, Mark Boland and his band T-Rex emerged with a revolutionary glam rock sound and look. Today, we conduct a classic album dissection of 1971's Electric Warrior. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. We'll also review the new album by American rocker John Mellencamp and the soundtrack to the new film Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. That's all coming up today on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, this is a weird story. It apparently is no longer enough for the music industry to sue its customers for deeds that they have actually committed. We are now getting into thought control operation mind crime territory where concert promoters are suing people for crimes they haven't yet committed. This started apparently when the Universal Music Group's merchandising arm filed a lawsuit before a concert by Lady Gaga at Madison Square Garden in case there were any bootleggers there who were selling illegal merchandise. <laughs> Nobody had actually been caught yet, okay, and the concert hadn't started, but they filed this lawsuit in advance. Now Live Nation and AEG, the two biggest concert promoters in the country, are taking it on the road. They have filed lawsuits in Denver, Colorado before the Mile High Festival and in California before the stop there in Southern California of the OzFest. Apparently, you know, they're after people who have bootleg t-shirts, recordings, baseball hats, whatever, what have you, who are out there in the parking lots or on the roads into the concert selling this stuff that they're not getting a piece of. And there aren't any people there yet. The concert hasn't happened yet, but the lawsuits have been filed in court. It seems really silly when the RIIA, the Recording Industry Association, has just shown us they spent $64 million so far suing people who actually have, they claim, illegally downloaded, and they've recouped $1.4 million in damages. How much money is Live Nation and AEG and Universal spending to file lawsuits before they've even busted anybody for selling an illegal Gaga or Ozzy Osbourne t-shirt? Are some folks I used to know Used to smile and say hello Spin the world and turn the page Entertaining from the stage The father time forever true Loves its own and me and you Disappear just like the sun When the day is done world is falling down, hold my hand, it's a lonely sound, hold my hand. 
That is The World is Falling Down from the great jazz vocalist Abby Lincoln. Lincoln died recently at the age of 80, left behind a treasure trove of great original songs. In fact, she was one of the few great original songwriters in jazz of the last 20, 30 years. Quite an accomplishment and reason enough to celebrate her on the occasion of her death. But I want to focus on another aspect of Abby Lincoln's legacy that I think is little known, especially among rock fans. Most rock fans know that in those revolutionary 60s, how important the music was as a soundtrack for that era, the civil rights era, the music of Curtis Mayfield, the protests against the Vietnam War, the music of Jimi Hendrix. We're well aware of that. But in the jazz world as well, there was an intensity creeping into the music that exploded because of the political nature of those times. You know, I'm thinking about the the music of John Coltrane, but also the music of Abby Lincoln. She began her career as a glamorous ballad singer. She was kind of being fashioned as a African-American answer to Marilyn Monroe in the 50s, but then she met the great jazz drummer Max Roach and was politicized. The story goes that she burned that Marilyn Monroe dress and adopted an African hairstyle and African clothing as her form of dress, and also the intensity of her vocal style picked up. The great album that she made with Max Roach, We Insist, The Freedom Now Suite from 1963, was written on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation. And it features Abby Lincoln on vocals, singing Oscar Brown Jr.'s lyrics. The vocal approach, I think, epitomized that era and that newfound intensity that jazz was achieving during that era. The song we're going to play is Drive a Man, the lead track from Freedom Now Suite. It is Abby Lincoln on vocals and tambourine, backed by Max Roach on Sound Opinions. Abby Lincoln with the great Max Roach on drums, their classic track, Drive a Man. Here on Sound Opinions, Abby Lincoln dead at the age of 80.
listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Jeepster by Mark Bolin and his band T-Rex. Greg, we are going to do a classic album dissection of the sixth record by the British glam rockers T-Rex, a truly revolutionary record that continues to influence people these many years later. Not an auspicious beginning for Mark Bolin. He was a long-haired hippie with an acoustic guitar sitting next to a fellow named Steve Peregrine Took who played congas. How this became the model for a real revolution in rock and roll. You know, people were tired of the hippies. They were tired of the singer-songwriters and the progressive rockers. Suddenly, there was this new kind of hyper-sexual, energetic, bubblegum rock called glam. Bolin was the electric warrior portrayed on the cover of this album, the guy taking on the world with his electric guitar in front of a giant stack of martial amps. But it wasn't about testosterone. You know, this is only a couple of years after the beginnings of the gay liberation movement. Hippie was all about people with a lot of hair and not a lot of makeup. Bolin put on mascara. He was all about the glitter, the glam, the gloss. Experiment with your sexuality. Be whoever you want to be. That is the theme of Electric Warrior. Not as alien, though, as you might think. A lot of 50s rock and roll influence in there, which is part of what makes it such a fascinating record. Absolutely, Jim. And we're going to play our favorite tracks from the album later. But first, we wanted to revisit our 2008 discussion with the album's producer, Tony Visconti. In his book, Tony Visconti, Bowie, Bowen, and the Brooklyn Boy, he talks about his experience working with T-Rex and David Bowie, the other great glam rocker of that era. Tony also talks about starting out as a producer in the 60s and learning from that famous team of Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler. That was an era of great innovation, so our conversation begins there, with Visconti explaining his own approach in the studio. Quite early on, I believe that um, the best kind of record production was kind of... uh, audio alchemy. I don't know a better word for it, but the the Beatles definitely were the progenitors of that kind of concept, you know, where Ringo was saying, uh, I don't know, uh, they make a guitar sound like a piano, they make a piano sound like a guitar and all that. And I just love that. I Mm -hmm. love the fact that you can play guitar and make it sound like a piano and like, how on earth do you do this stuff? So that was the kind of producer I wanted to be. I wanted to work with people who were really keen to do this, to to turn the recording studio, to make the recording studio a wizard's uh, laboratory, <laughs> changing sounds and altering them. That's what I wanted to do. And Tony, tell us how you first met Mark Bolin, because you started working with Bolin and Bowie at really early points in their careers. Both were undiscovered and hadn't yet taken on their glam rock alter egos. So who did you meet first? I think uh, Bolin came first. It's kind of a blur, but I think it was a month apart. There was this newspaper called the International Times, and I kept seeing an advert for a band called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I think I heard John Peel mention their name several times on his uh, radio show. And fortunately, that evening, they were playing right around the corner from my office, and I walked around to Tottenham Court Road and went down this... uh, 
little staircase to the UFO club, mm-hmm. <laughs> UFO club. And uh, there were two UFOs sitting on the floor and playing music. And of course, they were Mark Bolin and Steve Peregrine Took, collectively known as Tyrannosaurus Rex. When my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I could see that there were about 100, 150 kids sitting cross-legged uh, around the, the group. And uh, I was used to teenagers screaming when bands were playing, but this was kind of a a psychedelic folk duo, and the audience was hanging on to every nuance, every, you know, swaying their heads and swaying their bodies. And I kind of was hoping to find the next Beatles, but this band was something I didn't quite understand, and Mm -hmm. and that's what drew me to them. And I, I met Mark and gave him my business card and said, I would really love to work with you. He said, he looked at my card, looked at me, noticed I was American, and he said, well, you're the seventh producer who uh, contacted us this week. John Lennon was here last night, and uh, we're probably going to go with him and all that (laughs) stuff. So that's how I met Mark. (laughs) Of course, John Lennon had no idea who this band was. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I think people in America who who know and love T-Rex forget Tyrannosaurus Rex and how different that sort of almost pseudo Donovan hippy dippy folk was and, and Steve Peregrine took on the congas as Mark Bolin played acoustic guitar and sang Did you see any glimmer of the records that you would make in the future once Boland plugged in? Sure. You could tell it was based on rock and roll. He, he was uh, right on the first album. There were several songs that were basically 12 bar blues. And Mark already said that he was a fan of Chuck Berry and uh, earlier blues performers. And he, even his little wiggle in his voice was uh, the something he acquired he kept playing this record uh, of a blues singer at the wrong speed mm-hmm. and uh, it was higher a faster speed so he, he would sing along with the record and the vibrato was like like the, very fast you know <laughs> so i could hear i could hear rock and roll and blues even though they were very much uh, they they dressed like hippies they sounded like hippies when they spoke but you know there was a there was rock and roll in in that music You work with them for the long haul. I mean, you were with this band almost from the start, uh, from the start, literally, and, and, and throughout their career. The evolution was, was pretty rapid. I mean, they were an absolute sensation in England. I don't think people realize how big this group was in England at the time. Um, and you were right in the middle of that phenomenon. How do you explain it? Well, it's a small country. It's about the size of New Hampshire. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, when you get something, you know, when you get a good idea in England, you'll know within five weeks if you have a hit or not. It's very much unlike America. For about two years, they were making records as Tyrannosaurus Rex, and John Peel was the only DJ who was their champion. And after about uh, four albums, we finally came up with one song that everyone loved, Rider White Swan. It had that snappy sound. He was using all the riffs he did in his earlier music, but doing it on electric guitar. We had electric bass on that recording. It was the big hit we, we were all waiting for. We're a tall hat, like the druid in the old days. We're a tall hat and a tattooed gown. Ride a white swan that the people of a Belgian Where you head long, baby, can't go wrong. 
I think he wanted to play an electric guitar right from day one, but he couldn't afford one. His, his guitar was like a 12-pound guitar. I mean, it didn't weigh 12 pounds. It cost 12 pounds. Mm. And his acoustic guitar, and he always wanted a Les Paul or a Stratocaster. And by the time they changed the name to T-Rex, we had sold collectively with all the albums. We sold about 200,000 albums by that point. And uh, that was it. I mean, he was cute. He was one of the prettiest rock stars ever. He got the teeny boppers immediately with that song. And uh, we were selling up to about 20, 30,000 a day of that record. Wow. But not in America, only in the UK. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the whole idea of this glam rock fad was creeping into the culture as well. Where did that intersect with what Mark Bowen was doing? Well, uh, contemporary rock groups, the guys who were selling records, got all funny. You know, they, got, they, they turned into lumberjacks. They were wearing flannel shirts. Everyone was growing long beards, including the Beatles. The Beatles had beards, too. And uh, <laughs> the teeny boppers lost their idols. You know, they had no one to really look up to as a, as a counterpart. And uh, Mark just went the complete opposite. No beard, no flannel shirt. He was wearing glittery costumes, platform boots. He was wearing mascara. I mean, this was unheard of. Mm-hmm. He was absolutely beautiful and, and had an arrogance and a swagger that was anti the hippie movement. Even John Peel was shocked when Mark suddenly, literally changed overnight. He just decided to be a rock star and in an uncompromising way that you know no one else had ever dreamed of. I think Bowie was behind Mark maybe by a month on this. I mean, Bowie was thinking about this. So the, the time was absolutely right for a change. People were bored with the, the bearded rock stars, and they wanted you know, some nice, clean-shaven, pretty boys. And it was just fantastic. And we had the right music and the right look. Continue our Electric Warrior Classic album dissection and our conversation with the record's producer Tony Visconti after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ and PRX. And later on, Greg and I will review the latest from rocker John Mellencamp and the soundtrack to Scott Pilgrim vs. the World.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, and that is T-Rex with Lean Woman Blues from their 1971 release, Electric Warrior. We've been hearing from the album's producer, Tony Visconti, as part of our classic album dissection. Greg, when we spoke with Visconti earlier, I explained that, uh, in my opinion, Electric Warrior not only kicked off the glam rock movement, but it is, in fact, a beginning-to-end perfect record. Well, you are right. It is a perfect album. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, something I've been trying to emulate since. That album was done on the fly. They were traveling uh, in the United States on a kind of an ill-fated tour. We had uh, put out a second single called Hot Love. And I finally, after three years of living in the UK, I was finally able to uh, fly back to America to see my parents and friends. And that coincided with the the little mini tour that T-Rex were doing. So we all met up in New York. We all had a dinner at my mom's house, which there's a great picture in the book of all of us having lasagna and meatballs and all that kind of (laughs) stuff in Brooklyn. What did mom uh, think of this guy with the mascara? (laughs) Oh, she she loved him. She loved him because he helped put some money in her son's pocket. Yeah, my mom was always (laughs) like that. Have some meatballs, honey. She brought out some dresses. Say, try this on, honey. Yeah, that's all. (laughs) They feed him and they're happy. My mom's dresses were a little too large. (laughs) I had a real Italian mama back then. And... uh, so we got a phone call from David Platts, and, uh, who was my, my boss back in the UK, and he said, uh, Hot Love is still number one. We need a, an album. Of course you've recorded an album. We go, no, we don't have an album. You never invited us back into the studio. <laughs> he said, well, we need an album. You better record an album. So I said, well, uh, so I spoke to Mark, and we booked a, a local studio in Manhattan and uh, recorded a song called Jeepster and another song called Monolith. It's take two. Mark, what are you calling it? It's called Monolith. Monolith. Or the Duke of Earl. (laughs) You got the choice, man. And uh, we flew out to L.A. where we met up with Flo and Eddie, (laughs) Howard... um, Kalen and uh, Mark Volman, who were in the Mothers of Invention, but of course they were also the Turtles. Right. And they were good friends of ours. They had already sung some backing vocals. And uh, they got a studio for us, and we recorded Bang a Gong. One, two, three, four. Shit. 
By the end of that trip, we had about eight songs for Electric Warrior. And believe me, they were recorded seat of your pants, you know, on the spot, very quickly. The band were ill-rehearsed, but everyone played together for, you know, a year by this point and uh, played very well. We went back to London and recorded about uh, three more songs, one which was uh, Mambo Sun. had an album eventually. I mean, there was really no thought to it, and that's probably why it was great, you know, despite ourselves. We're talking to Electric Warrior producer Tony Visconti on Sound Opinions. Tony, I'm surprised to hear you say that the album just kind of fell together uh, really quickly. To me, as a fan, it came off as so thought out. The album cover is iconic, and there's all those signature T-Rex hallmarks, the rhythm, Mickey Finn now on congas, the guitar sound, and of course, Boland's vibrato voice. It seemed like the kind of album that an artist waited his whole life to record. Well, you're right. Mark was leading to this moment all his life. He wanted to make a great rock and roll album. He grew up on Elvis the same as I did. And of course, it was in my mind, too. This is what I was going for. I mean, it sounds like it was it wasn't that sloppy. I mean, we recorded very quickly the the uh, band and the vocals and a lot of the guitar solos. But we spent a lot of time adding strings and brass and piano. And, you know, a lot of the magic happened in post-production like that. And then, of course, I, I went upstairs at Trident Studios and spent a few weeks mixing the album. So we did carefully construct it beyond that point, but it was kind of a secret to the T-Rex sound, which Mark and I never forgot, was to record the band very quickly. Don't, don't give anyone a chance to get clever. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's a lesson I try to impart on the, the younger musicians I work with now who are used to working with Pro Tools and fixing everything. We really couldn't fix anything in those days. You, you know, you got what you got is what you got. <laughs> it was a striking record for the time, as you well know, Tony. I mean, you had sort of the bloatedness of progressive rock swirling around at the time uh, where everything was getting really complicated. And at the opposite side of the spectrum, you had this big singer-songwriter movement going on, especially in the States. And in between, here's this record, Electric Warrior, that doesn't sound like any of those things. And it still has a very rawness and simplicity to it that is really appealing. And one of the things I detected with with Bolin in terms of just his approach to the record, he lost some of that fairies and unicorns mythological kind of stuff that he was singing about on the earlier records and was much more direct and sexy and sensual in in what he was talking about in this record. And was that that something that sort of occurred gradually? Was this a very conscious thing on his part that he did that? Well, the imagery was still strong in his later lyrics. In mm-hmm. the, they were very strong, and occasionally the odd mythological reference was in there too. But um, he definitely wanted to be a sexy rock and roll god. It was very obvious, and, and it did change, and his whole emphasis changed.
he still believed in his quiet moments that he had a muse who spoke the words to him from his subconscious. And uh, it was the same muse that wrote the Tyrannosaurus Rex songs, that, that wrote the T-Rex songs, it was the same muse. Of course, now we could afford all the evil pitfalls of rock and roll, which was uh, like uh, cognac and cocaine. <laughs> and uh, that distanced him quite a bit from his muse. So I would say that uh, from after Electric Warrior, which was done in great innocence, and the next album was mostly innocence, but some decay was setting in, then you could see that he was losing it a bit. And it, it was more important to remain popular than to be artistic and be creative. What was his ego like, Tony? Could you tell Bolin when he was off or when he needed to be better? Well, he was one of the most self-determined people I'd ever met. He He's had a very strong ego, very sense of self-purpose. He he knew he, I mean, he was touched by God, according to him, and he probably <laughs> was. But uh, you had it rammed down your throat several times a day <laughs> that he was. <laughs> but most of the time, Mark was really as funny and adorable as he sounded. Like he could be, uh, he had a terrific sense of humor, and he would joke around, and uh, he liked a good laugh as well as anyone else. That was Tony Visconti talking to us on Sound Opinions about making T-Rex's 1971 album, Electric Warrior. And whenever we do one of these classic album dissections, we like to wrap it up each playing a song that we love from the record that kind of epitomizes what makes it a timeless and wonderful thing. I'm going to go to Bolin in his angry mode. But let's remember, the 60s had just ended. There was all that heavy protest music. Ohio from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and the inward soul-searching of James Taylor and his ilk. Along comes Mark Bolin, who is making music unapologetically for young teenagers. They have a lot to be angry about, too, and it's partly this mythology that's crammed down their throat of the preceding generation. Electric Warrior ends with this great song called Rip Off, and Bolin's mad. I don't know quite what he's mad about, but it rhymes wonderfully. <laughs> Rocking in the nude, I'm feeling such a dude. It's a ripoff. Bleached on the beach, I want to tickle your peach. It's a ripoff. <laughs> It's supremely silly, but in a wonderful way, and it has all those sonic hallmarks, that fuzzy Les Paul guitar through a Marshall stack, the percolating congas of Mickey Finn, all sorts of wonderful backing stuff on this record. You have Rick Wakeman of Yes playing keyboards at parts, Ian McDonald of King Crimson, The Turtles, Halen and Volman, as Visconti mentioned, all making this wonderful 50s-inspired but souped-up glam rock. Here is Ripoff on Sound Opinions.
That's ripoff from uh, T-Rex, the Electric Warrior album. Jim and I are running down some of our favorite tracks from that record. And Jim, you highlight an aspect of that record that I think a lot of people carry with them to this day. That new electric boogie sound, well highlighted with that song and Jeepster and Mambo Sun and Bang a Gong. Those are the songs that I think that people think about when they think about this record. And with good reason. Great stuff. But we sort of uh, laughed a little bit about his beginnings, Jim, as sort of this fey folk rocker in the British scene in the late 60s, and how sometimes that music didn't necessarily translate during that period of time. The whiff of pixie dust, a lot of imagery of unicorns uh, dancing through those lyrics on those early albums. A lot of Sid Barrett. Absolutely. But he, he bridged that gap on this record, too, and I think it was a really important part of it. Gave it the texture, gave it the, the fullness that made it the classic album that it is. There's a few songs in that vein that uh, looked back to that earlier era and linked it up to what he was doing then at the start of the glam rock era. You know, songs like Girl and Life's a Gas and the song that I'm going to play, Cosmic Dancer. And I think what this song illustrates is not only Boland's growth as a songwriter, but Visconti's growth as a producer. The Pixie Dust is no longer part of this song. It's an intense meditation in a lot of ways about birth and death and big blues feeling in this song. You could see it as a as a classic blues song from the 20s in a lot of ways in terms of what he's talking well, about you here. Know, it's worth pointing out that heavy metal bands to come, there's a lot of T-Rex in Guns N' Roses, say, right? As well as punk bands at the height of the 70s movement, they, they look back to T-Rex. A lot of the new wave bands, the bongos, everybody got a piece from this band. Yeah, there was a song for almost every movement to, to follow. The other thing about Visconti, he grew up with Bowen as well. And what started out as sort of a down-and-dirty acoustic song, he, he said that they recorded this album in very immediate fashion. It was very raw when it was uh, initially recorded. And then afterward, cool stuff was added, and that was really Visconti. So from the uh, acoustic underpinnings of this song, kind of a basic, simple folk melody, he added this wonderful string arrangement. The counterpoint lines that the strings are playing against those simple chords really add a lot to the song. And by the end, he's throwing in some backward psychedelic guitars, and it turns into this really expansive cinematic piece of music. It's a beautiful piece of arranging by Visconti, really taking Bowen's song to a new place. Cosmic Dancer from T-Rex on Sound Opinions. I was dancing when I was 12 I was dancing when I was 12 
That is Cosmic Dancer from T-Rex's Electric Warrior album on Sound Opinions. If you want to listen to more of our interview with producer Tony Visconti, visit soundopinions.org. And to share your own critical opinions of T-Rex or anything else in the cosmic universe, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. Next up, Greg and I will review the new T-Bone Burnett-produced record by John Mellencamp. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is John Mellencamp with a song called Coming Down the Road from his new album, No Better Than This. Mellencamp, he's been around for a while, right? 35 years, 40 million albums at one time, one of the biggest selling artists in America. Some people were talking about him as sort of a Midwestern answer to Bruce Springsteen or Tom Petty, take your pick. Lately, his career's been sort of in decline, no longer the commercially successful artist he once was, but still regularly releasing records, still very much involved in the Farm Aid movement. Uh, There will be another concert this year with Mellencamp heavily involved in that, along with Willie Nelson and Neil Young. And he is hooked up with T-Bone Burnett, a good career move from a standpoint of resurrecting his profile and his sound. T-Bone Burnett, kind of a roots music maven. He was the man behind that Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack a decade ago, which cleaned up at the Grammys and the Oscars. He also did that Raising Sand record with uh, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss a couple of years ago, another very much acclaimed record. Now he's hooking up with Mellencamp. Uh, They did a record together in 2008 called Life, Death, Love, and Freedom, and now they're back with No Better Than This. A little bit of a gimmick here. They recorded this album in three iconic locations. The first African Baptist church in Savannah, Georgia, which was a, a sanctuary for runaway slaves before the emancipation. Sun Studios in Memphis, the home of Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and all those great Memphis artists in the 50s. And the Gunter Hotel in San Antonio, the site of a very famous recording session by blues legend Robert Johnson in the 30s. So Mellencamp brought his original songs, his acoustic guitar, and his band to those three locations and had T-Bone record them with a single microphone and a single reel-to-reel tape recorder. So very much an old-school style recording. How does it work? We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. The title song from No Better Than This by John Mellencamp on Sound Opinions. That is John Mellencamp with the title track to his 25th solo album, No Better Than This. Do not adjust your stereo. There's nothing wrong with it. That was in mono. And that, Greg, is part of my problem with this record. What a lot of shtick. You're making a mono recording in 2010. You're going to these historic sites. Team Bone Burnett is layering it on. You know, and I'm sorry, John Mellencamp is just not in the league of any of those greats that he's aspiring to be here with this great sense of historicity. Mellencamp 
has been really earnest ever since the Little Pink Houses days. And I can live with that in short doses. Go produce farm aid. <laughs> Write the song about the Iraq war. That's fine. Write an anti-Bush song. But when you get a whole album done with such a heavy, ponderous sense of, you know, I'm going to do my Dylan paying homage to the 20s thing. He's like, look, John Mellencamp, you are not Dylan. And you may have all those rock critics. Everybody from Entertainment Weekly to The New Yorker is loving this album. I think it is a big pile of cow dung. I am going to say on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, this is a trash it record. Man, did you actually listen to this record, or did you just review the reviews of the record? I listened several times. And it then it sure it, sounds like it. In stupefaction, I went to check what my peers, including you, I never read you before we re- I don't yeah. know, you're going to say you like this. Tell me why. I good, don't understand. It's a good record. I mean, first of all, look at the songwriting. You, you're criticizing his songwriting for its lack of humor. This is exactly what it has. It, 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 there is a sense of humor at this record. There's a sense of looseness. One of the things I have not liked about Mellencamp over the years is his stridency. I don't hear any of that in this record at all, which I think is the great gift that T-Bone Burnett has given him and says, hey, loosen up, man. Just record these songs. Let let the record basically mix itself. He's actually worked with some really good bands over the years. He's got a very good band right now. They play together in a room in real time. I think that's a cool idea. You know, at first you think, okay, gimmick, but it sounds good. It draws you into this world. It creates a world, and it draws you into it. And again, the songwriting has a looseness and a vibrancy about it that I haven't heard from Mellencamp maybe ever. I love this record. I think it's a buy it all the way. Greg, every great rock band has a theme song, Witness the Monkeys. That is the theme song for Sex bob the band at the heart of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, the comic series, the movie, the soundtrack album, which is what we are reviewing. If you're not aware, a great comic series focusing on Scott Pilgrim has been turned into a movie starring Michael Sarah as the title character. It is steeped in the video game aesthetic of the, the first golden era, really, of, of Nintendo coming into the world, the late 80s, the early 90s. But it is at heart a rock and roll movie because in that period in which it's said, you know, we have the onset of the alternative explosion and Scott Pilgrim is in a band. He plays a fine Rickenbacker bass in a trio with a, an ex-girlfriend of his on drums and the talent, a fellow named Stephen Stills, although not the one who jammed with Crosby, Nash & Young, leads the band. Beck has written the songs for Sex bob to play in the movie. We have a lot of other hip indie rock heroes of the moment, Metric, Broken Social Scene, The Black Lips on the soundtrack, and some classic rock, including... T-Rex, Speak of the Devil, and the famous song Ramona by Frank Black, because there's a character named Ramona that Scott Pilgrim's in love with. It's all on this soundtrack. The only thing that's missing is a lot of the instrumental score, which was done by Nigel Godrich, who, of course, has worked with Beck and Radiohead and Charlotte Gainsbourg. Here is one of the songs. Beck isn't singing this, but he wrote it for Sex bob to play. It's called Garbage Truck on Sound Opinions. I'll take you for a ride Garbage truck. Oh no. 
Garbage Truck from the Scott Pilgrim vs. the World soundtrack on Sound Opinions. A soundtrack with a lot of stars on it, at least in the indie rock world. Uh, You mentioned Beck has written a number of these songs, Jim, as well as Broken Social Scene. We've got new tracks from Metric, Black Lips, Beachwood Sparks, etc. I think it's a troubling sign, though, when uh, the better and best tracks on this particular soundtrack are from vintage artists like Frank Black, T-Rex and the Rolling Stones. Garbage Truck is by far the best thing that Beck contributes to this record. He said he knocked out these songs in a couple of days, and it really does sound like it. The broken social scene songs, they're just fragments. They're one-joke songs that are never meant to be listened to more than once. I find this incredibly slight. No matter what you think of the movie, whether you love it or, or hate it, we're evaluating here the music on its own merits, and I'm afraid this does not hold up as a piece of work. It's not something I'd want to listen to again. To me, it's more of a souvenir for those people who love the movie and want to be reminded of particular scenes in the movie and therefore will play this. But otherwise, I can't see playing this for pleasure. This is a trash at record all the way. Oh, you are a cold-hearted, callous, and imperceptive man, Greg. <laughs> I love this. I think it's a great... Generation Y mixtape. It's got some old stuff. It's got some new stuff. It's got some silly stuff. Even if you don't see the movie. Even if you don't see the movie. I think those Beck tracks are classic. Could be Garage Rock. Classic. Classic. Could be Garage Rock circa 66. Could be New Wave or Punk circa 78. Could be Grunge 91. Or it could be the noise being made by a band like this in some garage or attic at this moment. You're not loving this? You're not thinking this is infinitely better than the Juno soundtrack? It's a great Generation Y movie soundtrack. I think it will stand the test of time. And the movie's even better. It's brilliant. Go see it. I say it's a buy it. So that's one trash it and one buy it for Scott Pilgrim. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to go on a summer road trip and find out what's happening in three music cities across the country. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Julia Mullen-Gordon. Our producer, Jason Saldana, is rocking in the nude, feeling like a dude. Our other producer, Robin Lynn, is dancing in the dark with the tramps in the park. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is, of course, Tori Southside Malatia. The president's weird. He's got a burgundy beard. I was sleeping gently, napping when I heard the phone 
Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Just a New York conversation rattling in my head. New messages. Hey guys, this is Josh in North Hollywood. Big fan of the show and always a big fan of the buried treasures. I call him with a buried treasure of my own. I'm currently in love with the new album by the Proto Men, a band out of Tennessee. They have two full-length albums. They're both acts in a rock opera based on the NES video games from the uh, 80s and 90s. And I know that sounds like it should have no musical validity whatsoever, but it is just fantastic stuff. What have I done? Though I did not pull the trigger, I built the gun that he holds in his hand. Last night I dreamed I'd climb to the top of a mountain of metal for miles I could see the destruction of man. It's kind of Genesis by way of Enio Marconi with some Jim Steinman and guests thrown in. Really fantastic. Thought I'd pass it along. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Gavin Miller from Schaumburg, Illinois. Um, Colin, in regards to your comments about Crystal Castles being an undiscovered gem, I have to say I've seen them about four times and couldn't disagree with you more about their live show. Every time I see them, they're late. They have technical problems. It's noisy as all can be. Allison likes the shiner light in the audience and the eyes of the people in front and now that they're playing the show at the Congress for 30 bucks I can't imagine even paying for something like that I tried but anyways thanks for the show Paul Neff, Chicago, Illinois. Just listen to your piece on Tom Jones. And I must respectfully disagree with your assessment of the album. Your objection is that, uh, on the one hand, Tom Jones has a well-established persona, which is campy, and that you regard his attempt to record Johnny Hooker songs and other covers from his youth as cynical. I don't agree. I think that it's really the fairest thing to give him the chance to reinvent himself at the age of 70. I think maybe all of us. At some point in our lives, might appreciate that opportunity. I'm certainly listening to Tom Jones with a new respect. Thank you very much. Get down on my bended knee. Deacon Jones, plead for me. Deacon Jones, please pray for me. Maybe there ain't no hell. Maybe there ain't no hell. Maybe there ain't no heaven, no burning hell. No! This is Mark in Portland, Oregon, and I'm impressed with your show lately. I thoroughly enjoyed your little review on the new Tom Jones album because everyone tells me I've got such a great baritone voice, like the NPR announcers, that I should be singing like Tom Jones. Well, I think I can come pretty close to that new voice he's trying to emulate doing those old solemn blues numbers. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you. Yes, I do. You and your little pussycat eyes. Yeah. 
To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. You and your pussycat.